Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hey people, this is Ben. This is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Episode 186, if uh, those sorts of things are uh, in some way significant to you. Uh, I suppose it's significant to me that I've done that many. But um, I'm very happy to welcome Sam Jones as my guest. And I will, as is customary, introduce Sam in a minute. There is going to be a little bit of business at the beginning. There are going to be a couple of sponsor reads. Don't skip. First of all, this episode of Small Voice is supported by Flow Photographic a leading internationally renowned photographic print studio in central London, where the emphasis is on personal service and the creation of stunning prints, and where clients are invited to take their time, drink coffee, and discuss their work with Flow founder and hugely experienced master printer Alex Schneiderman. You can't drink coffee if you're not in London, obviously, and you can still, of course, take advantage of Alex's fabulous service uh, remotely but um, I guess you just have to drink coffee at home anyway the studio which also carries out exhibition framing and installation is located in central London 20 minutes from Soho and a minute's walk from Kensal Green Tube Station recent clients include leading photographers such as Joel Meyerwitz, Paddy Summerfield, Jem Southern, Mimi Plum, Chris Anderson, Matthew Finn, Alice Tomlinson and Sunil Gupta many of whom are previously over this parish, as you know, as well as Magnum Photos, Stanley Barker Publishing, Howard Greenberg Gallery, Huxley Parlour and other museums and art installations all over the world. Art installations, art institutions, you know what I mean. The lab is also home to Flow Photographic Gallery, a non-profit space that supports and showcases British documentary photography. So go to the website flowphotographic.com and call Flow today to make an appointment to discuss your work with Alex. Also, a bit of news on the Charcoal Book Club front. Uh, obviously, this episode is also brought to you by the brilliant Charcoal Book Club, the monthly book club for photo book enthusiasts, which you should know all about by now. And uh, Charcoal has just opened a call for entries to the seventh annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize. So that's very exciting. It's always an exciting time of year to um, know that that event is uh, on its way next spring. 20th of March is uh, when it kicks off. So it's the week, 20th of March, 26th. And the speakers for 2023, Antoine Dagatar, Stacey Kranitz, Karen Hattelberg, who you may have heard on the recent uh, Isle special, Anastasia Samolova, who also you're going to hear soon when we finally get it in the can. It'd be nice to get Anastasia on. Igor Posner and of course, Vanessa Winship. So that's a pretty darn good set of speakers right there. And anyway, uh, you can go to chicoreview.com and find out more about the Chico Review, a juried photo book retreat taking place over six nights at Chico Hot Springs Resort near Livingston in Montana. Uh, so more on that in the weeks to come. And that's it as far as the sponsors go. So I can get... Oh, also my books of the month. I'm still looking forward to... Uh, as it was given to me by Stacey Kranitz and, of course, Departure Loud by Jason Eskenazi. Those two on their way to me, hopefully. Very excited to get those. So, Sam Jones. Let me read the uh, bio for Sam. It's quite a long one because he's done a lot of stuff. Sam Jones is an acclaimed American photographer and director whose portraits of President Obama, Sandra Bullock, George Clooney, Bob Dylan, Kristen Stewart, Robert Downey Jr., Amy Adams, Jack Nicholson, etc., etc., 
have appeared on the covers of Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, Esquire, GQ, Time, Entertainment Weekly and Men's Journal. Sam's collection of candid celebrity portraiture, The Here and Now, Photographs of Sam Jones, was published by HarperCollins. Other published works include non-fiction, a collection of cinematic portraiture, and somewhere else, a photographic book and musical collaboration with the musician Blake Mills. Sam is also an acclaimed director, creating numerous national commercials for Skype, Sonos, Canon, Target, Dove and many others. He's a sought-after music video director who won MTV's Music Video of the Year for Foo Fighters' Walk, He's directed videos for Mumford & Sons, Tom Petty, John Mayer and many others. And he also directed the multi-award winning interactive video for Cold War Kids' I've Seen Enough. In 2013, Sam launched Off Camera with Sam Jones on DirecTV's audience network. Uh, an hour-long show created out of his passion for long-form conversational interviews. Via worldwide broadcast, online magazine and podcast, which is where, of course, I listen to it. Uh, Sam shares his conversations with the artists, actors and musicians who fascinate and inspire him most. Robert Downey Jr., Sarah Silverman, Dave Grohl, Laura Dern, Tony Hawk, Matt Damon, Will Ferrell. It's a right roll call over on uh, Off Camera. They've all appeared on the show. And Sam also directed feature-length Showtime documentary Lost Songs, The Basement Tapes, continued a film that re-examines Bob Dylan's basement tapes and documents new recordings of Lost Dylan lyrics by Elvis Costello, Marcus Mumford and others in Capitol Records Studios. The film features Bob himself, his Bobness, as narrator and documents the exciting collaboration between some of the most successful current artists in music and a 26-year-old Bob Dylan. The film premiered on Showtime Networks. In 2002, Sam started his feature-length documentary career with I Am Trying to Break Your Heart, which chronicles beloved indie rock band Wilco's tumultuous recording of their acclaimed fourth album, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. I watched that very recently and I, I really loved it. His most recent feature-length documentary, which I've also, of course, seen, Until the Wheels Fall Off, which is a portrait of the life and career of legendary skateboarder Tony Hawk that was released earlier this year. Sam lives in L.A., with his wife and his three daughters. So um, this is a great one. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. There's so many valuable learnings to be gleaned from this chat I had with Sam. How did I discover Sam? I, I'm i going to make a confession now. I've got a bit of a f- obsession with John Mayer. And I became fixated on who had shot the cover for the album Paradise Valley, which, of course, is probably... A, a stone's throw from Chica Hot Springs, uh, wherever that was shot, somewhere very close to there, which, of course, John Mayer has a place to live there. Um, I couldn't find, I don't know, and I wasn't able to find out who'd shot it. And then, then I somehow became aware of Sam's work. And then I found on his website that picture uh, of John Mayer, and I was like, ah, I've nailed it. And that led me to discover off camera Sam's amazing uh, interview show, which, uh, of course, you can listen to just as a podcast. And I listened to a few episodes of that, and I thought he was a really good interviewer and obviously talking to these incredibly famous A-list celebs. And uh, you can also see that on YouTube as a video show, but uh, it was yeah recorded uh, as a TV program. And then I learned that the most recent thing that Sam had done was direct this Tony Hawk documentary until the wheels fall off so that really got my attention and I thought I've got to invite him on I didn't think for a minute he'd uh he'd do it and uh emailed and there was no answer for I don't know maybe only a week or so and then lo and behold got an email back from Sam and uh 
he very graciously said, yeah, let's do it. When do you want to do it? So I was delighted. It was great. And um, I so much enjoyed talking to him. Here's Sam Jones. Well, look, it's, I'm really so, so flattered and, and delighted that you, you that you could find the time to chat. And um, there's so much we could talk about. Um, I've, I just watched the Tony Hawk doc fairly recently. That was great. Pro- probably your most uh, recent uh, endeavor. Um, and so um, I'd love to ask you a bit more about that. Yeah, but sure. It's funny that, you know, you're one of those people who, who sort of started out with that sort of unholy trinity of uh, skateboarding bands and zines which seems to be a kind of is a kind of theme for a lot of people why, you know, why do you think so many people begin there well I think it's the same part of the brain that wants you know for me at least and my friends uh, the the ones I gravitated towards were creative and also seeking adventure so skateboarding fulfilled that sort of need for to get uh, you know our blood boiling and and uh and then music of course is sort of that sort of the same thing with the creative side of it uh, and then and then i think the art side is trying to express all of this passion that you're feeling about the things you love to do yeah. and, and share it with others and so i think that's why a lot of bands got started and zines got started and because uh there's this there's this desire to share it. And now, you know, social media has, of course, changed the landscape on that, but I think the intention remains the same, and that is, hey, I love this thing. I want to share it with you. Mm. And, and, and I, want to, I want to stay in it, you know, even when it gets dark and I can't go outside because I have to do homework. I'd rather be in my room somehow connecting to the thing that I love to do. Yeah. Well, I heard you say something really interesting and insightful, which was that, in a way, it's... Um a way to get a taste of the entire creative process from start to finish, which I suppose, you know, then stands you in good stead for, for any future creative endeavors. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's funny how none of this stuff is, is intentional or, or analytical when you're, when you're first doing it, you know, the greatest thing about, I think about being a kid is that you're in the present all the time. At least I was. And, and so you just, fueled by your desires and anything else is just an obstacle that's in the way. Mm. And for me, that was probably an early education into um, going after what I wanted uh, and, and not, not, you know, seeing the conventional path or, or feeling like I had to follow it. You know, it was just this desire to make what I saw in my head a reality mm. and, and which was great for skateboarding because you know you'd build a ramp or you'd sneak into a uh, empty pool in someone's backyard or or you know you'd you'd bum a ride from somebody or you'd take the train or whatever it took to go do the thing and and same same with music I think you know uh, finding someone that had a PA and oh this drummer has to be in the banks his mom has a car or you know uh, just hustling and solving problems and, and of course you as a photographer know this like. That's that's the whole gig. Like yeah. it's it's having an idea and then problem solving. Mm. And I think if you if if your mindset is that um, that you're just going to make it happen, uh, and it doesn't even occur to you that it that it won't happen, uh, then then that's a pretty good pretty good blueprint for you know how to how to have a creative career. 
But also you said somewhere about where you grew up, you don't start something you're not going to finish. And I was thinking, I don't know where you kind of came by that, that sort of uh, ethos. But, you know, if anyone who can kind of take that to heart is really already, you know, at an advantage, I think, because so many of us, I think, struggle with that. And I do still, even to this day, you know, how did that, how did you come by that sort of way of thinking that, you know, you, you know, you, the, the important thing is to finish what you started. Well, yeah, I think, I think what I was trying to say is that the creative impulse in me was always strong, but I think it, it wasn't high-minded or, or artsy. It was all about making something and doing something to entertain myself. And skateboarding and music and art, all, all those things were related to me. They were all incredibly... Um, you know, they just ran through my veins from the time I woke up to the time I went to sleep. I wanted to do fun things. And, you know, when I was younger, it was, you know, maybe it was uh, throwing things at cars, you know, in a creative way. And then, and then as I got older, it was, you know, it was skateboarding, it was playing guitar, it was, it was figuring out how to record something on a four track recorder. Uh, It was figuring out how to make a magazine and go down to Kinko's and figure out creative ways to print it without having to pay. (laughs) And, uh, and what I think is at the heart of that is that once I get an idea, I want to see it through to completion because in my head, it's always the best version of that idea. And I can't tell you how many times as a kid that the end result certainly didn't match the, you know, the, the original shining idea in my head. But, um, but yeah, once once I get that way and I get an idea, I want to see it through. And if that means calling my friends and getting them involved and talking them into doing things or borrowing a car or getting a ride or whatever it was, you know, I, I mean, at once, I, I'm not proud of this, but uh, a bunch of friends and I once stole wood from a construction site because we wanted to build a ramp and we had no means whatsoever to build a ramp. Mm. And uh you know, it, and I think in a weird way, having having those limitations and not having access to everything made me made me more allegiant. I had more of an alliance with with my creative spirit because nothing came easy. Um, I didn't have my own video camera, so if I wanted to make something, I had to find someone who did have one. And I, you know, just like just like if you're a kid, you didn't grow up with a swimming pool in your backyard you're going to figure out a way to get invited to go swimming at your friend's house. And, and so when I get an idea and I want to see it through, I don't, I don't see the obstacles as things that will stop me. I just see them as necessary parts of the, of the process, I guess. Mm, Yeah. You know, well, that's so interesting because, you know, you sort of, later on you applied some of those principles when you made the Wilco documentary, for instance, um, which is, you know, something that I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing at some point because I, I kind of was vaguely aware of it before. You know, that was, a, again, something that it was a very DIY kind of an approach. You know, you just went out and did it. And um, that had its own challenges. What, what were the things that, that kind of threatened to, to drive that project off the rails as you went through? Oh, well, everything. I mean, the... <laughs> That I always think of that the beginning of that project as sort of no one called each other's bluff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wrote a letter to the band and somehow it got to the band through because I sent it to the wrong place. I sent it to like the 
somebody in the publicity department at the record company and it got forwarded to the band and then they invited me out and you know I kind of made my pitch but it was complete bullshit because I'd never pitched a documentary film before and uh and then I got a call to to they said if if you want to make this film we'll we'd like to have you and uh and and then I was like well I guess I have to now because <laughs> they, yeah. you know what an opportunity but then you know then it was okay well no one's writing checks so I'm going to have to take my savings from the photography jobs I'd done so far and uh um and sort of you know throw money at it and then the first week of shooting cost so much more than I thought it was going to and yielded 5 minutes of the movie and you know, it wasn't hard in my head to do the math and, and realize how much things were going to cost if I didn't change my process and approach. And so there was every kind of begging for favor and, and, uh, having, you know, getting, getting, uh, charity from Kodak at the time who gave us some film and, uh, my producing partner who was a commercial, uh, commercial producer, who just kind of believed in me and, and, um, helped with help with putting together a crew and all that stuff. So, you know, I don't want to misrepresent that this creative process of doing it yourself and not seeing any obstacles is, uh, a joyful thing because often it's filled with anxiety and doubt. Um, and I'd be lying to you if I said that that's not a huge part of the process. And when you get to the end of a film and you have any kind of success at all, and a film is a good example because it's unlike a photography project, uh, a film is a really long-term, big-budget endeavor. And when you get to the end of it, um, you know that you get to celebrate. But the the micro micro amount of time that you celebrate versus how much went into it, you know, it, it certainly doesn't it doesn't balance it all out. But mm. but the joy of making something to me has always allowed me or or been been the price I was willing to pay because I wanted to will the things that I wanted to make into the world, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's almost like, you know, the kind of, the muse kind of pays you back for that in some weird ways. I mean, with that particular project, you know, stuff happened in the in the course that you couldn't possibly have predicted. That What you ended up documenting was kind of the making of, I guess, I'm not a big Wilco expert, but what I think would be considered to be their masterpiece, that particular album um but everything went tits up because their record company were like basically trying to pull the plug on it or something along those lines anyway and of course that was kind of a gift in terms of the narrative of the story that you ended up making yeah at the time i did not see it as a gift uh yeah because i had sort of a different film not a different film but i wanted to explore the creative process and uh when when all of the uh, details, the 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 litigious and contractual details uh, started happening, and the band members splitting up, and record company dropping the band, uh, it didn't initially look good for for any of the original plans, which was to document this beautiful creative process. But what I realized was that the creative process is always intertwined with the uh, financial process. You know, David is always lurking around Goliath and vice versa. So, um, so in a way it became, it became an even more, uh, 
in-depth look at the creative process because what you find out when you take on big creative things that have partners and contracts and financial obligations is that um, uh, there could be a lot of pain associated with trying to shepherd what you're making through to the finish line. Mm. And sometimes it breaks up relationships and sometimes it ends in, you know, financial disaster. And, and that is a very, uh, it's a story that's played out, you know, untold times in, in any industry that's creative, whether it's the film industry or the record industry or the art uh, world or photography or whatever. So um, it was a gift in the long term, but in the short term, um, it made that project three times as long as I had kind of thought it was going to be. And, and obviously it cost a lot more to Mm. get to the finish line and all that stuff. Uh, But it taught me a great lesson, which was that when you make a documentary, you have to go in with your eyes wide open to what may occur and be very prepared to give up your expectations or what you thought you were doing and let whatever's happening into the room because otherwise you're not really making a documentary. You're making a narrative film. You've already sort of planned it out before you got there. And to me, the best docs are the ones where something unexpected happens. And and I think because of all that too, it was such a film school like uh, experience for me because um, I, I had to learn how to handle all of those different uh, storylines, both visually and uh, narratively and with the editor and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that was exactly what I was going to ask you, you know, what, what was this kind of big takeaway from that experience? Um, but yeah, you've, you've basically answered that question. Just to go back, back in time again, and I, I do this, I apologize for sort of, you know, jumping around uh, chronologically, but you grew up in, in California, yeah, uh, in Fullerton. What you know? How how did that place sort of influence you know the path that you ultimately took? Yeah, funny enough, it it really did influence um, my path uh, in, in ways that were unexpected. Because you know, I, I discovered skateboarding very early, and part of the reason I discovered it is there was a huge boom in skateboarding in Southern California at around the time I was seven or eight or nine years old and skate park, skate parks started popping up, uh, all around. So there was, there was one in Anaheim and there was one in Buena Park and, and, you know, so kids started skateboarding and going to the skate park. So, and then, and then because it was a warm climate with a lot of, uh, middle-class homes that had sort of you know, swimming pools in various states of disrepair, there were empty pools and there were, um, you know, and there was a lot of days with sunshine and it wasn't cold at all ever. So, um, so we were outdoors all the time and, and more even than the city, I grew up on a block with about 13 kids, uh, all within similar ages with me. So having all that. And then at the same time, there was a big music element of my city because Fender guitar, started in Fullerton. And because of that, there were music shops and there was sort of an infrastructure because guitars were being made there. And, Mm. and so there were a ton of bands when I was in high school, uh, tons of punk rock bands that started up right in that area. I mean, my school had Agent Orange, The Adolescents, Social Distortion, members, members of all these 
Orange County punk rock bands went to the high schools in the area. And so I was sort of, you know, surrounded by the things that I ended up loving. Or maybe mm -hmm. I ended up loving them because I was surrounded by them. So yeah, it, yeah. it was hugely influential. It's strange. So it's kind of a lot of parallels. I think we're pretty much the same age. I think I'm like a year older than you. I experienced something similar here in the UK. Well, the weather couldn't be very much different. But apart from that, you know, a few years later, it sort of skateboarding came to the UK. So I would have been maybe 13, 14. And then suddenly this thing just hit. And um, my brother kind of got into it. And then everyone was suddenly into it. And you know, I was I was never going to be a very good skateboarder, but um, what I was interested in was photography. And we did, unusually for the UK, ha get a skate park in my town, which was, you know, one of the coolest things about, this is like provincial England, just outside of London. One of the few places to have a skate park. But I, there was no point in me taking my skateboard because I was crap at skateboarding, but I did take my camera. And that was my first experience of photography really I'm really falling in love with photography was photographing my friend skateboarding at the skate park I don't know when you when it happened for you with the photography was it was that part of your experience or was did it happen a bit later no it was actually um you know I stayed with skateboarding and and uh was very serious about it so I was still you know high school and college um those were the years that I was most um serious and I had friends who were pro skaters. And uh, so um, actually my first photography experience, um, <laughs> funny enough, was one of my close friends was Neil Blender. And he was a good photographer as well as a skater and uh, needed to do an ad for Gordon and Smith with himself in it. So we set it up together and he kind of showed me the basics of, of what we were doing. And, um, and we went and, you know, made that picture together. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think basically you needed someone to sort of push the button. But, um, uh, but shortly after that, I took my first photography class in college and, uh, you know, my first portfolio that I turned in for my first photography class was full of skaters because I, I would be at all these giant half pipes, you know, and it was, it was all the pros or a lot of pros and, and really, really good skaters. And, and, um, so, yeah, I, I definitely learned very quickly on the fly to to make skate photography. Mm. But your kind of early years were um, you were sort of heading towards a photojournalistic route, really, you know, in terms of the kind of photography that you were pursuing. Was that is that how did that come about? Well, pursuing is a funny word, because when you have nothing and you have no prospects, uh, you'll pursue anything that'll pay you. <laughs> so and the, I will say that my the most influential teacher for me at my college was a photojournalist named Mark Boster, and he was an L.A. Times photographer. And he was sort of the first guy that believed in me and said, you have some talent and some ability and you see things differently than the rest of the class. And that was huge for me. And I, I think if he had been a, you know, a still life photographer, maybe I would have done that because I, I was just such a sponge then. But luckily for me, he, he was out in his day job, you know, photographing every, everything for the Los Angeles times. So I ended up joining my college newspaper, which was, uh, 
it had an incredible journalism department and it had a daily paper. They published a paper four days a week between 16 and 32 pages long. Wow. So there was plenty of work at school. And, and I just made myself a permanent fixture of that, uh, uh, you know, of the classroom where that we published the paper. Mm. It was actually a floor in the, in one of the buildings where there was the, the, uh, you know, the layout room and the, and the photography. And one of the reasons I did it was because um, the newspaper had their own darkroom and you didn't have to use the communal darkroom with all of the first year photography students and mm. have people flipping on lights or yeah. contaminating the stop bath or whatever it was. So, so I, I started shooting for the paper and kind of was able to use that dark room with three or four of the other photographers at the time. And it was our kind of private dark room. We had a, we had a boom box with a bunch of cassettes. And so you can go in there all night long and print. And, mm. and I fell in love with, with it. But I think I fell in love with also the fact that I, I had the, the tools to make things and, and a place to do it. And, uh, but I, I mean, back then I was still, I mean, my plan was either to get a record deal or, you know, professional skate uh, <laughs> yeah. team wanted me or something. So I kept that fantasy alive for a little while. And then once I, once I finished college, um, I luckily got, went right to work for the Associated Press. And so, you know, it's it funny was just in a way. A, yeah. Yeah. You're the, it's funny that the photography was the, was the, the lesser, you know, the lesser kind of, you know, the, the, the most likely of those, of those, particular kind of uh desires whereas you know in some for some people it would seem well i think i heard you say that you know well i think you were talking more about i guess the kind of people that you ended up photographing but that this was you know it felt like another world at that time you know f um for people who were special or magical or whatever and that at some point you must have come to the conclusion or come to the realization that actually that isn't true and that you know you could find a way for yourself yourself figure out a way to to make it work for yourself yeah i, I mean it, it's funny that photography seemed like the safe choice and looking back that seems crazy but i really thought that the band thing was going to work out and and i think it would have if uh if i had had a you know two or three other people in in a band with me that were as driven as i was um but you know the the amount of momentum it takes to do any one of the, those pursuits is, is more momentum than it takes to do almost any other job. And, and I found myself sort of, and, and by the way, this is a feeling that is now so normal to me. I, I, I forget it exists, but I found myself pulled in different directions and I love playing music, but I also loved taking pictures and I love skateboarding and, and, um, and I was running around like crazy, you know, and, and, and I remember being late to band practice because I was shooting something or, you know, I missed an assignment cause I was playing music. So, um, uh, I think photography, it became this consistent thing for me that I could do. And, um, and, and obviously it was paying the rent, nothing else was. Hmm. And, and around that time, I really started realizing how much I love photographing people and doing portraits. Um, so, so, you know, it was sort of like a, I, I was sort of just, uh, I don't know. I feel like those years are almost like a blur of 
taking any opportunity that sounded interesting. Um, and, and, you know, and then slowly finding my way into the thing that I was good at. Mm. Do you think back on yourself as a confident person at that point? Like when you started shooting, you know, did you go into those jobs with a certain amount of, of self-confidence or, you know, were you, I'm just thinking in terms of, you know, when you start, especially when you start shooting famous people, obviously that doesn't happen all at once. You don't suddenly go from no, from nothing to George Clooney, but I presume there was a sort of moment at which you found yourself photographing those kind of people. And I'm wondering how you kind of dealt with that or what your reaction to that was. Yeah. I mean, uh, confidence is like the sun in London. I think it shows up when you don't expect it and it leaves when you most need it. And, (laughs) you know, confidence to me is, is, uh, it's not something that I can, at least back then I couldn't generate it. You know, um, I, it it was almost like, uh, uh, a feeling that, you know, I I couldn't quite predict when I was going to feel it next. And when I did feel it, that's when I had my most productive and, and creative times, I think, because, um, you know, when I think when you're an artist and you're feeling good and everything's working and flowing, um, then the ideas come out and you, and you believe in the ideas. You could have the same idea when you're down on yourself and think it's a terrible idea. And someone else could have that same exact idea, but they're feeling great about themselves and the idea will become great. Hmm. And it's a very nebulous thing, but what I discovered was that I could have all my un, my moments of no confidence at home by myself. Like the hardest part for me about my career, the entire career was when I had to sit in a room and come up with the idea that I was going to try to pitch or that I was going to try to produce or pay for or talk someone into and having that idea go through all of the self-critic and filters and whatever, you know, whatever negative voice I had to get it through. But I discovered that I could, that I could do that process sort of on my own and land on some ideas and make a list and draw a storyboard or go location scouting or something. And I would build my own little confidence by being prepared. Mm. So then by the time I've, I finished that, I, the idea and I landed on something then it was that thing where it's like, okay, I see the picture in my head. Now I just have to go out and make it. And I think I was, I would become fixated on that and that would distract me from maybe feeling intimidated or like I didn't belong in the room because I, my whole, you know, I was so focused on walking to that room and telling whichever publicist or celebrity uh, why they should do this idea and, mm why there's a horse here or why there's, you know, a bucket of water, and you know, whatever the idea was. And, uh, yeah. So I think that was, that was the key for me was preparation helped my confidence. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and I think that, well, it's funny. I was talking to Greg Williams quite recently. He's another photographer who, you know, photographs the same um, group of people that I'm, you know, you've photographed over the years. Um, and, you know, A-list Hollywood, basically. And, you know, he was saying about, you know, when he's with them, he doesn't see, you know, like a big movie star. He's, he sees an artist that he's there to collaborate with. And I was thinking you, you probably approach it 
in a similar kind of way that you know these people are they're up for things they're up for joining in on whatever your kind of crazy idea might be because they think you know they think in a kind of similarly creative way is that your experience of it uh it's actually not um and i think i think it you know there are those people that occasionally you'll come across that feel like a collaborator and they feel like they have as much skin in the game as you for making an interesting picture and when that happens it's great but i I never counted on that because um you know fairly early on when i did that wilco movie i did some press for it and i was photographed kind of uh you know several times in a row for the first time by photographers and so i had this i had this epiphany uh about what it's like to be photographed and I highly recommend that any photographer, you know, go out and, you know, mm. find a, find a situation where another professional is, is photographing you because there's an entirely different um, agenda from both sides. And what I realized is that, yes, I may find a collaborator and may get lucky like that, but, but most likely there's someone that... Um, maybe doesn't necessarily want to be there or has their own insecurities that they're too afraid to talk about or has an agenda of their own. So, um, so I navigated that differently throughout my career. When I was younger, um, I saw it as I I had to talk them into my ideas because I was young and I was proving myself. And the only way to prove myself was to get people to participate in an idea that then elevated a picture. Uh, but then as I, as I went further in my career, I think I have more empathy for what maybe their experience and would be of the photograph and that it's going to live out there and it's going to be them as well, you know, and and it's funny to look at my younger years through that, uh, filter and think about, you know, the time I'm trying to talk Hugh Grant into an idea because it's a really funny idea, but not knowing that, you know, he's completely mortified that he has to be photographed for this film while he's just been outed in the, you know, for the yeah. thing he went through. And, and I don't know, as you, as you gain experience, you kind of put that stuff all together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know. I think, I guess my answer to that would be that um, every person is different. And what I found was always effective was to just try to get to know the person just a little bit and understand their their expectations before starting and yeah. and that seemed to help you know well you, you, i guess as also as you advance through your career and you know you became you become more experienced and and you know you have a, a kind of archive of stuff um people I guess react to you slightly differently and that and perhaps that you know it becomes clear to them that you um are someone who they may have even seen your photographs you know of people that they know or people that they've worked with and therefore i presume there's a certain amount of trust that kind of you know it's a kind of self-fulfilling thing in a way that that increases as you photograph more people yeah a shift did occur for sure at a certain point in my career where i got older so I wasn't the youngest kid in the room and um, I was able to have different relationships with, with both the, you know, the talent and the 
publicist or the manager, whoever it was. Um, and eventually I, I, I was either the most experienced person in the room or the person that was asked to be there um, and requested and for a specific reason, like you said, because they know my other work and, and they're excited to be there. And th that was very, um, <laughs> that took a while to sink in for sure. And I realized, oh, I don't have to, uh, I don't have to do the, the dance anymore. I don't mm -hmm. have to, I don't have to make people like me or make people think I know what I'm doing. Um, they've walked in feeling that because I have a body of work and that's, that is one of the things that is both, um, it's helpful, but it also is dangerous because I think that the work starts to get less interesting when, when you are that person, mm. you know, it's a funny thing to, to make a picture and have people say it's great. And you're looking at it and you're like, eh, it's not that great. I, you know, I can do better, mm. but everyone here seems to be happy. So what's the problem? <laughs> and yeah, then yeah. you, I think you find that in any kind of any creative field and, and, uh, you know, the trick is to always keep your own standards high and and not really um, pay too much attention to your current pecking order in the room. Yeah, yeah. Well, also that you talk about, you know, the ideas that you had for these images. I think you, you kind of started off with these kind of quite high concept kind of convoluted scenarios in some way. But I, I've, do you feel like you simplified things as, as time's gone on and that you sort of stripped all that away to some extent? Was there a, a shift in the way that you approached a portrait? There was. I, I mean, I always tried to come into a... I, I had high expectations that I could, you know... I would ask for more time than they wanted to give and I would, I would have this whole list of things. I mean, I would never finish my list. Um, but I always tried to have a, um, a few ideas that were really big. But then I also always tried to take time to shoot a simpler portrait. But what I found when I was younger, I would spend all my time on the big ideas. And then I had, whatever, five minutes to do a quick hmm. portrait. And, um, and yeah, as I did, things did get a little simpler in the, um, during the off-camera days because... Um, I had less time, but I was also more interested in, in seeing what could be done without all of those ideas. And, and quite frankly, I just didn't have time to sit and concept something out and have sets built and doing all that stuff. I mean, I still love the idea of marrying the perfect idea with the right person and whatever it is that's going on in their life at that point right then. One example of that is one of the pictures that I made that is still a favorite of mine is a picture of Steve Martin when he's walking across the street through a field of banana peels. Mm. And it, it was just one of those ideas that works on uh, a purely visual level and a funny level, but it's also, it's deeper when you think of Steve Martin having a career that lasted so long that he avoided the cliches that a lot of comics fall into and slipping on a banana peel is a, is a, you know, physical personification of an idea of, mm. of a cliche. And so um, when an idea comes along like that, it's, I, I loved when I landed on something and then it was just like a dog with a bone. I had to figure it out. I had to, I had to get the talent to agree to it. And then I had to get the money to, you know, get the right location. And, um, and I still, I love that in theory, um, but times have changed, you know, photography's changed. 
people's relationship with photography has changed with social media and Instagram and um, and uh, so sometimes I think you can you can make a bigger impact with a smaller uh, yeah. smaller statement these days. That's funny that you know, that is the picture that I I was thinking of when I was asking that question the Steve Martin picture but just you know now looking at, at the website your website and you know there's I mean there's a picture of Laird Hamilton which is couldn't be simpler really and that's uh, that's also you know couldn't be more different in a sense because it's a very straightforward you know headshot almost but it's a it's a lovely portrait and there's a there's a number of them that are, you know a bit, a bit like that so there there is that other side to the way that you're shooting and that's confidence too um you know I I think I grew up thinking that I was really going to have to blow people away to even be included in the room, you know, and, and, uh, that's all another, you know, it's a whole different podcast on, (laughs) on, you know, uh, uh, psychology, but, um, yeah, we may, we may get into it (laughs) for a long time. Yeah. That, that was a big part of it was, um, I felt like, I was getting these opportunities to shoot for these magazines that I had always wanted to shoot for. And it was like, I was still trying to get the job when I already had the job, you know? And, and it was an incredibly successful strategy because I would, I would do something that would blow the magazine away. And then they had to hire me again, Mm. you know? And I think they would see how hard I worked and, and I became really reliable that, that, you know, a lot of magazine editors like, like, we'll call Sam and he'll, he'll think of the idea. He'll figure everything yeah. out. You know they, what I mean? They want someone who's going to deliver. And, and that's, you know, that's the, the, their job is then made easier to know that they can trust you. Right. To, yeah. And to me, it was also that, Hey, if, if, if there's a budget and I can get, you know, cause sometimes I would have ideas and they weren't connected yet to a person and I would just kind of file them away. And then, you know, if the right, if the right subject came along, I was like, Oh, here's the chance to spend 15 grand and get this idea done that, you know, Mm. that I've had. So, um, so yeah, it, it, I, I think that, that, and, and interestingly enough, I, I started out, um, sort of my first semi-professional art gig was, um, I I did political cartoons for my college newspaper the first year and and uh I you know I I don't know if I got paid for it or if I got I don't know what I got but anyway um there was a there was a learning curve there in figuring out how to take a whole idea and put it into one frame that I got from trying to come up with ideas that you could illustrate you know, a whole theme in a single picture, like the New Yorker cartoons. That's a great example of what a photographer has to do, which is, which is put a whole world into a single frame. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so a lot of my work, like the Steve Martin picture, or Chris Rock, or any number of ones that I've done that are pretty high concept, they started out as a, literally a cartoon that I drew. And, uh, and then, you know, I went out and sort of brought that to life with a camera. Mm. Well, you mentioned off camera, which is an entirely other thing that you've, well, I guess really has become a major part of what you do. And um, for for my listeners who don't know, it's, I mean, I, well, I'd call it a podcast, except it's much more than just a podcast because you, you film it as well. So it's a, uh, 
it's a it's a it's a TV show really, but it goes out as a podcast as well. But then you also the guests that you have on that you you do a photo shoot with. So that was what you were referring to. How did that all come about then? What was the the, the original kind of kernel of of an idea when you again you know once you have an idea you um you tend to pursue it. You're you're not easily um deterred from 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 seeing how it's going to work out. But how did it begin? Yeah. So. <laughs> Off camera was a, a sort of a three-headed monster. There was, we did a magazine element, a podcast, and a television show. And it started uh, in 2013, and it ran through 2019 and stopped right at the pandemic when, mm. because it was an in-person thing. But uh, what happened was, I think back in 2013, I was talking to another director friend of mine about podcasts, and and he was very into them, and he said, do you you know, do you listen to podcasts? Do you like them? And I, and I said, yeah, very much. Like I like this American life. And, um, uh, yeah. And I, and, and so he said, you should do a podcast. You'd be good at that. Cause you've done so many interviews. And, and I said, yeah, but if I did a podcast, I'd probably film it, you know, and then there's no technology to watch a podcast, but that's probably what I do. And then if they were going to come over and I was going to film them, I'd probably photograph them at the same time. And then I'd probably transcribe. The, and, and just in that conversation, the whole thing was born. And I was like, oh, yeah, I should do a conversation, photograph the person and make a complete portrait of them. Because off camera was was really what a portrait tries to be. You know, it's 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 a full picture of somebody. And um, and, and I like the idea that that y- you could buy it by really noticing and listening to somebody, you can really create a picture of them and their, their, their path, their process, uh, why, why they do what they do and how they do it and, and put that all into something visual. So, um, it it was a strange process. We hired, we hired a web company. I said, I wanted to figure out a way where you could go to a website and you could, you could go to, it, depending on how you like to engage, you could go to any of the three. You go to the magazine and look at the portraits and read about. You know, you could read the transcript, which we edited in, into uh, you know more of a magazine sort of style interview, or you, or you could listen to it in your car or whatever, or you could watch it. And what ended up happening was after about six or seven of them, uh, an editor friend that I knew passed it along to a network executive at audience network, which was a direct TV thing here in the States. And they made us an offer to buy it as a television show. Wow. And so at that point, the television show became the lead, um, the driver of everything else. And we still made the other things. Um, but it, you know, it was a little, it was sort of like the TV show was the, the thing that we, that we sold mm. and the podcast became, you know, something that we we're able to make and put out there. And I, it's interesting because a lot more people know it as a podcast than the show. But if you, you know, if you had direct TV in the States or I think it was on Sky in Europe and it was, it was uh, on Netflix. So uh, you found it in all different places, you know? Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, you were really good at it and, and I don't know whether there was a steep learning curve there, but um, I could do with some tips on interviewing. I mean, I've been doing this a while, but I still, feel like there's a lot to learn um but you know what what did you come to to conclude about 
how the important you know elements of interviewing someone and and you know what are the most uh yeah what were the most important things the most important lessons i guess that that you took from from learning how to do that well experience is the number one thing and you can't get it any other way than by doing it and it, you know so many coaches and teachers and experts out there try to give you what they have inside them but that key thing that cannot be replaced is experience. You just have to sort of do it. And I think when I started doing off camera, I think a lot of people who didn't know my other work um, were like, well, what's this photographer doing, you know, doing this show. But I had done so many interviews at that point because through making documentaries and uh, doing commercials uh, that had an interview element or whatever, um, I, I had done a ton of that already. And, and that helped. Um, mm. But but I think also, you know, being a journalist and, and never really stopping that, because even in my, um, you know, even when I was just purely a photographer, I, I would talk constantly to these people while I was photographing them because I wanted them to forget about the camera. So I, I would prepare even, I would even think about what kind of conversation I could have with, you know, say Will Ferrell the day I was shooting him. And mm. uh, so I, I think I'm sort of a natural, um, I naturally want to know how people did what they did. And I naturally want to compare it to my experience. And do you feel like an imposter? Do you feel um, like, like, you know, that this confidence is a thing that waxes and wanes or um, mm. so a lot of off camera is my selfish desire to, to gain knowledge from people, you know, without having to pay for masterclass. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, like, yeah. <laughs> most people have to pay for Ron Howard's masterclass, but I had him on my show and I got to right. ask him everything I wanted to ask him. Yeah. Yeah. Similar kind of motivation for st starting a podcast in the first place kind of sure. was for me in a, in a way and to just connect with people. I think that's it. I think you're in, you're interested in connection in some way and you're curious about people and about, as you say, how they, got to where they've got to and you know what sort of obstacles they've overcome but you were dealing with very famous people and i presume you were just calling on your the contacts that you'd already made in that world um you know you you had you had very major stars come on and so I, there's always a kind of comfort it seems to me that they have with you which kind of suggests that they they know who you are and they know you know what they're gonna get as it were there's no um they're not guarded i guess is what i'm trying to say which you i would often expect people like that to be because i guess they've all been interviewed a million times but there's an openness and there's a kind of honesty and there's a kind of vulnerability in a lot of those conversations that you had which is what makes them so so exceptional i think well i uh, thank you for that i uh i certainly started that show off by taking the, you know, which, whatever relationships I had and, and the, the people that I felt like I could actually reach out directly and say, can you do me a favor? This is a, this is a, an experiment. And mm. can you come by and, and, uh, you know, the, I remember I asked Robert Downey to do it. I think he was the, the seventh one or the sixth one or uh, so very early, um, and he came in, he said, I am doing you such a big favor. 
<laughs> you know, and I'm like, yes, you are. But, I, you know, I think, I think just my, my personality or my nature is that it's all kind of a laugh anyway. Uh, you know, like, um, I, I don't, I'm not ever someone to walk into a room and act like I belong there and I'm supposed to be there. I, I sort of, I, I, I try not to uh, create any sort of, um, I don't know, for lack of a better word, I, 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 I try not to put on any airs. So um, I think that that's disarming because it, if you're not doing that, then the other person maybe doesn't feel like they need to do that. And they can, mm. you know, there's an honesty there. And, and I think also, I just, I've never really screwed anyone over. My, my goal was never to find the, the thing that no one ever said before and put it out there and get a lot of views and clicks. Uh, we, we sort of, I went away from all of that. You know, when I remember when the TV show first started and the network picked us up, they hired like a social media company to push the thing out. And, and after one week, I figured out that the entire strategy was to create fake accounts to say how great the show was. And it was such bullshit. Mm. And I immediately called them. I'm like, we're not doing this. And they said, well, we've paid them for a month. And I I was like, use them for some other show. We're not doing it because it, it was embarrassing to me and it yeah. was fake and it was it was everything that it's the opposite was. of what you were really exactly. trying to do yeah. exactly so i feel like sometimes to get that sort of result or to to keep things um not blown up and big and and uh, you know guarded like you say uh you have to li- you have to be willing to let things go too mm. you know I mean, what, when you're sitting down with someone, what are you hoping for ultimately? Like those ones that, that you recommended to me when I asked you about the, the ones that, you know, you tend to recommend or the ones that are your favorites, what kind of characteristics do those episodes share in a way? I don't, I don't know that they share characteristics, but I think in each one of the episodes that I thought was successful, um, I, I saw someone light up and... Mm. You're just talking to them and you're talking straight to the part of, of their uh, history or memory or consciousness that um, that feels the most alive. And so you're having a, a moment of connection with another mm. human that's real. And yeah. it doesn't matter if they're famous or if they have more money or whatever it is. Um, you found the thing that like, like whenever you can almost see it in someone's body language uh, and, and when it occurred, uh, it just felt, I don't know. It's, it's a simple thing, really. I mean, it happens at dinner parties every, every time, you know, someone gets eight people together, but, um, but, but it's, it's often how it's often overlooked, I think in the desire to create something professional or to create something that will go viral on social media or whatever it is. I think the simple thing is overlooked, which is that something gets this, these people out of bed in the morning and it's probably not what you think it yeah. is. And, and if you get them talking about it then, and for me, it was also when I felt like, Oh, you and I are, we've had the same experience. And, and, uh, and then I, I can ask the right next question to, because memory is a funny thing, right? I'm sure you've had this experience where you've had a memory that's, 
completely repressed and you haven't thought about it forever and someone tells a story and all of a sudden this memory comes back that you never could have found otherwise, right? Like they, their story ha- was the key that unlocked your memory. And, and I think that that when those things happen, um, those are really great too, because they're not just someone rolling out the stories that they know always do well in these formats, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's much more natural and kind of organic than that. I'm wondering about whether it feels to me like the way in which very famous people now um, seem to be much happier and more willing to sit down and be very, very honest and vulnerable publicly. That feels like something that didn't really happen before. Uh, and I, I don't know when that started happening. We're, we're the same age, so we must have a similar kind of f- framework for it. But am I wrong or is that something that you feel like is a kind of fairly re- recent phenomenon? Well, I think, I think it's a societal change when it comes to the relationship that, uh, that the media and people have with um, anyone that could be considered famous or a celebrity, which is, I think, you know, you, you think back to 20, 30 years ago and there were publicists like Pat Kingsley, um, who, you know, was Tom Cruise's publicist. And the whole goal was that you presented a persona. Exactly. And it, the, by keeping the fruit high up on the branches where you can't reach it, it, that looked like the most magical fruit, right? Right, exactly. And, and I, th- I think that that was the theory in general. And then, um, and then the whole world cracked open with social media, and it was like this giant social experiment started taking place where you had people being very confessional, and the publicists and the managers—they're not dummies. They're like, well, look at that that person who's really being open and honest and real, mm. uh, and. and they're getting all kinds of engagement. We're getting all kinds of offers. So yeah, yeah. It, it's always like, you know, chase, chase where the, uh, you know, chase, chase the motivation for those kinds of things. Because, um, you know, as a photographer, it, the beginning of it, it kind of made me crazy when, you know, there was kind of that time when you were still doing the big giant magazine cover you know, and there were four hair and makeup people and such a scrutiny over, uh, all, you know, the entire image. And then that same person would take a picture of themselves on a plane the next morning, not having slept and no makeup. <laughs> yeah, right. And you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, and I, in a way, I think off camera was a reaction to all of that too, which is, um, which is okay. Well, I, I'm going to do it the way that I've always seen it, which is that the person being themselves uh, if, if you can elevate that through honesty and through authenticity, um, that, you know, that was sort of where I found my little, my little place, yeah. but, but it is an odd thing. And it's, it's not something that I have the, you know, I don't have a, uh, the answers to explaining how that shift took place. But I, I do think that it, um, uh, it, there was, it was just that people saw that, that, um, wow, mm. you know, this really works. This People works, really yeah. loves seeing the you know somebody's bathroom. Real. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like you say, the the mystique 
that used to be uh, created, you know, kind of artificially. Or if you think back to the golden age of, you know, kind of, you know, Humphrey Bogart or someone like that, you know, Marilyn Monroe, you know, that no one knew anything about those people, I, I, I right. would imagine. And, and that was how they wanted it because they were trying to, you know, create these, like you say, these kind of otherworldly kind of beings. And then I suppose in, in this day and age, that isn't possible anyway. So you may as well just go all in with the uh, candid. Uh, and, yeah, I don't uh, know. I mean, there's something to me that is still um, great about choosing what you share. I'm very careful with that. I don't share my kids or my family or, you know, most of my stuff that I do decide to share directly relates to work because um, it, it doesn't feel very real to share something intimate with someone you don't know. It just doesn't feel real to me. Mm. And it feels like if you're doing that, there's, there's a reason, you know, whether that reason's good or bad or whatever. But, um, but I do still admire uh, that impulse to keep things to yourself. And, And I'm sort of happy that I'm happy where my life is now that I don't feel like I need to do any of that, Mm. you know, to, to, sustain an existence no sure yeah. yeah i guess i guess if if you're in in a, a profession i.e., acting or whatever where you are required to talk to people on a fairly regular basis whether you like it or not then you've got to make a decision as to you know how open and honest you're going to be i guess you know if, if you're in that situation it makes sense in a way to just go well i might as well you know talk about these things i i see what you're saying but i think there's a sort of there's a kind of line to to tread there because i really like love the people who things is you know dak shepherd i know you is a friend of yours and his wife Kristen Bell. I love the way that they're so candid about things, and and um, you know, I, I I love listening to Dax's podcast because of that. Because I just I just can't get enough of that sort of thing. And I think I'm I'm clearly I'm not the only one. Yeah, and you feel like you know them, and yeah, and uh, you know, and I, I think that some people make that decision for very good reasons because um, there's a lot of good that comes from that. But uh, but there's also, you know, Dax. I think Dax and Kristen are. As far as I remember, I don't think they show their kids. Oh, no, no, media. no, no, no. But, but there are some people who, you know, you just feel you've never met these people, but you feel like you know them if you follow them. And and it, it is an odd thing to, you know, to think that there's people with millions of followers out there that kind of know what their kitchen looks like or know where they keep the, you know, the, the whatever, the pool toys. I don't know. Um, it, 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 yeah, I, I think I think it's. I think we're in the middle of a grand social experiment with all of it. And um, there's certainly there's certainly both sides of the coin, you know, yeah, yeah. positive and negative. Yeah, for sure. Well, I have to talk to you about the Tony Hawk doc. Um, it's called um, Until the Wheels Fall Off. And uh, that came out quite recently. And, you know, that's one of those... How, how come no one has done this yet kind of a things that's uh, what I, I said I, that's i guess that's what you said right yeah, yeah. and and you know go, c- goes back to to what we've already talked about your your kind of very intense um or you know long-term relationship with skateboarding on a, on a serious level um so how did it come about did you already know tony i did i i had him on my show and i met him a few times before that um our paths crossed throughout different periods in, in my life first as a skater and then uh on a few uh, projects uh, but we were never we never really connected until i had him on my show and uh 
And after I had him on my show, something stood out on that show, which was I wanted to know why why he was willing to or how he was willing to keep slamming. <laughs> and e- even when he was learning tricks when he was young, I, at, when, I, when I tried a really hard trick and I, I slammed on it, oftentimes that would just be the last time I did that trick because I didn't want to go back to the hospital or I didn't, I didn't like the feeling and it scared me. And so I'd be like, okay. And that was most skaters. Most skaters who didn't become pros, um, they're, the list of tricks they could do were the ones that didn't scare them or didn't make them get hurt. And so uh, I asked him a question when he was on my show about the willingness to put himself in that position every day. And, and it kind of just stuck with me. And, uh, and I, I think, I think I had the thought three or four different times of, Oh, I should ask Tony if I could do a documentary about his life, you know, if he would participate in that. And then I had the same thought as you, I just thought, well, someone else is already probably doing that, you know? And then I think one of those days when I was brimming with confidence, um, you know, because you have to time these things. You know, when you feel really confident, those those are the times to make phone calls and and to pitch ideas and things like that. And so I just called him and, and I just said, I just asked. And and it was surprisingly that part was surprisingly easy. Mm. Uh, and, you know, he had known he had known the other films I'd made and um, and, and respected those films. And and so, he, you know, um, I, th- I think that that obviously helped. But, um, but, you know, whatever, whatever it was that I presented was different than he'd heard before. Mm. And so he agreed to, to go down that road with me. Yeah. Well, um, for the three of my listeners who don't know who we're talking about, Tony Hawk's like the the greatest skateboarder who ever lived or certainly the most famous or or, or one of the greatest. But, you know, I, as I say, I was never really a skater, but, but I was, I'm still fascinated by him. And I think, you know, what I realized in, in thinking about talking to you was that, you know, I'm curious not by what people do, but why and how they do it. And so in a way that it's really got nothing to do with skateboarding for me, that film. And I guess hopefully that's something that you probably had in, in mind yourself. When you're making a documentary, you want to find the thing that sort of, you know, the, the more universal kind of themes that are behind that specific thing. Right. So, um, and I, and I, I really enjoyed it, you know, on that level. I, you know, I don't, I, I was never a skateboarder, but like I watched that video that millions of other people watched of, of him doing the 900 for the first time. And I didn't have to know anything about skateboarding to know what an amazing moment that was, right? Because you can just tell and you, you know that that's something that a lot of other pros have been trying to do for a long time. So, you know, it's an amazing feat, but it was really about, an obsessional kind of commitment really. And that's what his life seems to be about. So did you have all that in the back of your mind when you were making it, that it had to, it had to be something that wasn't just about, it wasn't just for the skateboard nerds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew the thing is, if you make a film about Tony Hawk, every skater is going to watch it. So I, I knew, I knew I had that audience, but what I wanted to do was make a film that, um, uh, it's funny. I wanted to make a film that did the same thing that I was always trying to do with my mom, which as a kid, I was always trying to 
make her see that the things that I liked were that had value. Like I would try to always play her music that I liked. And her response was, Oh, it just sounds like noise, you know? And, and skateboarding was just like this thing, you know, that you're just getting hurt at and it's, you're not doing your homework. And there was no value in her eyes to these pursuits. And, um, and I think that a lot of people see skateboarding that way, even to this day, weirdly enough, even though it's been around forever and it's been in the Olympics and uh, the X Games and all that stuff. Um, but what it is, it's an incredibly hard thing to master. And you have to be not only a tremendous athlete, but you have to be a tremendous, um, you know, tremendously driven and uh, brave. <laughs> and uh, And I thought if I could if I could look at Tony's specific story and what drove him that maybe I could get people to connect with that. And when someone's the best at something, they make tremendous sacrifices. And for me wondering why it is, you know, to me, it doesn't matter if Tony became the best skateboarder or rock climber or bread maker. Um, The fact that he was driven to do it, and um, and had his own engine that didn't require outside help from his parents or friends. You know, he was the kid who was going to skate longer than you and not because he was even thinking about you. He just loved it mm-hmm. and wanted to get better. And, and so by by really getting inside of him, I thought that anyone could connect with that and understand it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other one that comes to mind for me along those lines is... Um, Free Solo, the the Alex Honnold um, film. I'm sure you've seen that one, right? Yeah. And that, you know, like I don't care about rock climbing, but I'm still fully in that there because you, you still right. know if the guy falls, he dies. That's that's the that's the the, the story there, right? And um, but isn't that all of us though? I mean, yeah, exactly. If we all, if we all, like, we all have stakes in our own life, and it's not often as black and white as hanging on the side of a mountain without a rope, right? But we're all hanging on in a certain way to our families, our marriages, our kids, our jobs, our, uh, you know, our, our confidence, our whatever it is. And I think that what stories like that help us do is it makes us connect with the fact that everyone has these desires and, and we all choose to play that out in, in, in a different way that fits with us. But I think the reason people connect to the Free Solo doc and the Tony Hawk doc is because they're seeing somebody who is is determined to make to to make their life have meaning. Mm. You know, Tony skates because that's what gives his life meaning. And I don't know if anyone who's not him can totally understand that, but we can all understand that we want meaning in our own lives, mm. you know? Yeah. And I think that's the same thing why that kid goes up the mountain without a rope. Like having a rope would give him, wouldn't be the same meaning for him, Mm. you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I've got to say on a personal level that the the film that I now want to see, and I think you should be the one to do it, Sam, is is the Rodney Mullen film. (laughs) Because that's the one, that's the one that I, again, you know, maybe someone's done it, but someone needs to make that film because he's amazing. I love, I love him. And again, I'm, I'm not a skater, but you know, watching his Ted talk again is, is a thing, you know, 
which has really got nothing to do with skateboarding. And um, and I love those th- those examples, you know. And I love the way that he, you know, expresses himself that way. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I he's. I mean, obviously, when when I interviewed him and and knew that he was participating in the movie, he's a unique individual that can that was able to speak about skateboarding in a way that um, that gave meaning to Tony's journey. You know, and and every skateboarder's journey, every skateboarder's reasons for doing it, and mm. and uh, man, you, when you when you find someone like that, uh, they they can, you know, that makes that film unique. He yeah. he's he's an incredible individual. When he did that TED talk, he's there's a thing he said which is kind of a throwaway comment, a kind of rhetorical question. He he comes on and he says, "How pathetic is it that I'm still skating." And I was thinking, well, all right, I'll answer that, Rodney. It's not at all. It's fucking awesome. It's beautiful that you're still skating. You know, I, it was that was typical of him, I guess, to say to say that. But I was like, there, I can answer that one because, yeah, what again? It was about this that commitment to this one thing that you found that you want to just just become completely fixated on. Sam, I've re- I've I really I was so pleased when you got back to me and said you do i'm really so happy that you have and i, I really appreciate you you coming on and, and chatting with me it's been really great to hear from you thank you so much for doing it oh i appreciate it i appreciate you having interest in what i'm doing and uh you're you're a great photographer as well and um and you i can tell you have this restless you know desire to make images that haven't been seen a lot of people's work these days when you look them up i think you're seeing a lot of other people's work on there within their body of work and uh it's it's inevitable that in in a world where we have access to all pictures that uh, there's a lot of people who sort of copy or 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 want to emulate and uh and i find your compositions and your your work to be original oh uh, thank you yeah i appreciate that i appreciate that hugely that means a lot coming from you thank you so much sam yeah my pleasure